0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So we're in Acts chapter 27 today. The penultimate chapter. One more left. uh, And today we're going to take a cruise. We're going to cruise the Mediterranean. How's that sound? Lovely, right? (laughs) Except occasionally it's not so lovely. We'll find that out today. I'm sure you've read ahead. So, We've been marching along with Paul uh, over the last several weeks as he's met various dignitaries and, and um, pleaded his case, and, and we remember those things. and uh, When we last left, in the latter part of chapter 26, uh, we've had uh, King Agrippa, who's uh, there visiting in Caesarea along with his sister Bernice. Um, and, uh, Festus has Paul in custody and Paul has, uh, has talked to Agrippa and, um, they wrap things up in verse 30 and it says, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And we know that, uh, at a certain point along this, um, Paul uh, decided to play the Roman citizenship card um, and said, I need to get to Rome and I'm going to appeal my case to Caesar. And so at that point, um, the local dignitaries, our hands were essentially tied and said, okay, uh, we're going to Rome. And so that's where uh, we pick up. Maybe by way of overview, um, let's go ahead. I've got just a couple of slides, Dan. Let's go ahead and do this because. Um, so, um, this is a, a profile of um, Judea. And here we have a ridge of mountains. Here's the Jordan River. Okay, so the Sea of Galilee would be up here somewhere the Jordan River and then the Dead Sea right down here in Jerusalem which is kinda up in the hills and then we see this journey down, Uh, this is where uh, or roughly where uh, there were plans to ambush Paul on the way anyway makes it down here to Caesarea and that's where all this has been happening so when they talk about going up to Jerusalem they're talking about going up to the hills Um, down to Caesarea, they're talking down to the coast. And then this is a big map, so here we are now. Caesarea is down in his right-hand corner. And this shows how Paul makes it to Rome. So he's going to take a boat to Sidon, from Sidon up around Cyprus to this other port, Myra, At this point, as we'll see in our story, they're going to change ships. A lot of our story happens around Crete. This is Crete. There's a port that gets talked about called Fair Havens. There's going to be a storm, and they land on the coast of Malta. That's where chapter 27 finishes up, and then from Malta they make their way on up to Rome. So I'll talk about Crete here a little bit because a lot of our story happens around that. So I thought it was interesting to talk a little bit uh, about the whole, th- this whole story has a lot to do with the, with the ocean. and um, It's worth, and this is kind of faint, I'm going to show another picture, but this is what they think from archaeological finds and there's hundreds of wrecks in the Mediterranean, what a typical merchant vessel would have looked like so just a couple points and i know it's a little bit hard to see but one <laughs> big square sail um, some had a smaller sail up front but but it was a as i understand it by sailing terms a fairly simple square sail and then there's going to be some talk about the rudders and normally we think of rudders being right at the back but their rudders were basically like big paddles and they could These weren't um, propulsion paddles, but they were basically steering paddles. Um, So that's the the concept as we go through our story. Here's another picture. This one has a foresail on the front, which um, uh, our our boat that Paul is going to be on probably uh, has one of those. And again, you see this big steering paddle in the back and then the main uh, sail. Talking about Crete, this is a blowup of, uh, this is just... Google Earth with the current Greek names, but uh, the story is going to start over here on this right-hand side, which would be the easternmost portion of Crete. They're going to come around here. The Fairhaven's port is somewhere over here and along the journey they decide to take one last uh, area to to spend the winter and it's over here and it's interesting. I'm going to blow this area up because they talk about a harbor that faces east and west. And so if you focus your area in here, I'm going to blow blow it up again. So here's this harbor that uh, faces both, (coughs) this part faces the southwest, and this part faces uh, toward uh, the north. And um, this is one of the places where they think uh, they, they were trying to get to. Alright, so that's our, kind of our layout, so, uh, as there's there's so much detail, um, and it, you don't even realize how much detail is there until uh, you start to walk through. So here we go, verse 27, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to the to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, we see centurions often on throughout um, Luke and Acts, and almost always they're they're presented in pretty favorable light. Um, the, this these were the kind of the middle management of the hierarchy. They, you know, had a, a hundred uh, soldiers in their command, so obviously they had to have some leadership potential. Uh, they were good at following orders as well uh, so it's, he's uh, been attached to a centurion verse two and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail se- I'm sorry which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica now uh, there's a couple places in scripture where Aristarchus shows up uh, perhaps a, a personal attendant of Paul. Uh, I think most people think he, he probably wasn't a, a fellow prisoner. Verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon. So that's that first port after they left Caesarea. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the ice of Cyprus. I'm sorry, I don't know where it's got that. Under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myria in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So this was an Egyptian ship, and back in the day, uh, it would have mainly been carrying lots of grain. I think we may see that later. Uh, And Rome depended on uh, grain from Egypt for, for most of its most of its food supply, or at least a lot of its food supply. Um, so this was a primarily a cargo ship, but of course they would take on whoever was willing to pay that they could hold. And, and so the centurion uh, found this ship, which would have been a much bigger ship. So they've been kind of skipping along the coast, and you know the thinking is, let's get to a bigger ship, one that's more um, designed for the big open water, and we're probably going to make a better time there. Verse seven: We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus as the wind did not allow us to go farther. We sailed into the, under the lee of Crete, that's our island that we just looked at, off Salome, and that's the that far eastern area. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lazio. Uh Who is who? Who has done some sailing? Where's Ken. I know he's done some sailing. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a there's the windward side of things, and there's the lee side of things, which means opposite the wind or away from the wind. So as they're going around this southern area of Crete, the purpose of that is they're getting some nasty winds, and they're they're hoping that the land um, and and Crete is reasonably mountainous. They say. They're hoping that that will, will break some of these adverse winds, okay? So that's the reason they're going to the south, uh, which is not, would not have been the direct route, uh, but they're going to the south to try to um, kind of uh, uh, blunt the impact of these unfavorable winds. Verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. So, now who is Paul to tell these folks, what's, you know, this doesn't look good. I don't think you should be doing this. Now, a couple things. It says, Much time had passed. The voyage was now dangerous. Even the fast was already over. This fast they're talking about is is Yom Kippur, the the Day of Atonement. This happens in late September, early October, and apparently anyone who knew anything knew that sailing in the Mediterranean in the fall was dicey, and anything after November was just idiocy. So, that's the time frame here. It's fall. The winds are turning unfavorable. um, And now you've got this Decision-making tug-of-war going on, and and Paul, you know, being a natural leader. Now he's not speaking prophetically here, but he is speaking of one with experience. Um, if you go to Second uh, Corinthians, um, and you guys uh, know this, um, he's done this before. He says in Second Corinthians, which is before this, uh, chapter eleven twenty-five, three times. Ta- he's talking about all the travails he's had while he's trying to serve Jesus. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. Think about that. If I was shipwrecked once, it would be really hard for me to get back on a boat. Um, I, I happened to meet as, as a, uh, in the form of a, a patient, one of, the, um, one of the people that was on the plane on the miracle on the Hudson. Uh, was, uh, he was in the plane. And they, I was talking to this gentleman and um, uh, they had the airline and said, you know, we will pay for you to fly home. Uh, and we'll, there's going to be a reunion. We'll, we'll, we'll pay for that. <laughs> he was not going to get on a plane. He said, no, thank you. Uh, I'm not getting back on that. And, but, you know, Paul, he, he was headstrong and he wanted to get where he needed to get to. So it says, three times I was shipwrecked. And on top of that, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. 24 hours, he's floating with not a life jacket, not only maybe a piece of lumber. So maybe, maybe he's getting some PTSD. I don't know what's going on, but, but he's, he's saying very politely, verse 10, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Verse 11, but the centurion, and you can't fault him for this, paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So they wanted to make it a little further because it's going to be a more favorable harbor to spend the winter. They knew they were cutting it close. They knew they couldn't go all the They, they weren't going to make it all the way. But they said, let's go just a little further. Um, we think it'll be better. Verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. In other words, it started out looking like they were right. They had some They had some favorable breezes. The wind had been coming from the northwest, and they're trying to get to the northwest. Now they're getting winds from the south. So it's looking good. They might have even looked over in Paul and said, we're the professionals here. Leave this to us. Verse 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called a northeastern struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cotta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So here's the picture. The wind has shifted to the northeast, so it's driving them, if we looked at our map, it's driving them further west, which They want to go further west, but it's also driving them further south toward Africa. There were some dangerous sandbars that were notorious in that area, and they were very concerned that they were going to run into those. Um, So things to say they took a turn for the worse is an understatement. But again, they pass by this small island. It gives them some temporary protection of the wind, and there's a boat that they've been trailing behind them. This would have been a boat that would allow them to, you know, to anchor and then to, you know, transport people back and forth uh, to uh, the land. They don't have the big docks like we do nowadays. And then also, if they needed to put out anchor, they would row out, drop the anchor off that, and so forth. So this was a, a useful piece of equipment. They were just trailing this boat, but it was probably full of water by now, and they were probably afraid it was going to get broken. So they they had enough time to pull in this this boat. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, they use supports to undergird the ship. What they're picturing here is that they would actually take massive ropes, drop them off the front of the, the bow, and then shimmy them back and actually encircle the entire boat to add strength uh, to keep the boat from falling apart when this mast starts to really heave. So they're, they're just battening down the hatches, literally. Let's see. Verse 17. After hoisting it up, they used supports the to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirdis, that's the that sandbar I was talking about, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Ba- this lowered the gear is basically a, a, a sea anchor, a drag anchor, to a brake. Okay? Not a hold fast anchor, but something just to slow them down. Verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. The ship's tackle, that would be maybe some of the smaller sails that they thought they could get by with. Um, Any loose equipment that just wasn't of absolute necessity, they were tossing that over. Allow the boat to ride higher, less likely for the waves to swamp it. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Fourteen days. This had been going on. I think we find that later, somewhere 14. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. What's the significance of that? They weren't using GPS to navigate. They were using the sun and the stars to kind of tell where they were. So they had no idea where they were. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. You know, bless his heart, he just can't resist the I told you so. Um, But he... You know, I mean... You know, he might have thought a little bit more about the story of Jonah. You know, they they could have gotten rid of this, you know, uh, pesty prophet. Verse 22, but now he's going to give some hope. He said, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. This, to me, says Paul was praying for them. He had been praying for the people that were there. So take heart. So take heart. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. And a little farther, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. This Adriatic Sea, back then, there was this area called the Sea of Adria. uh, But this is not where we call the Adriatic Sea. What we call the Adriatic Sea is... kind of east of Italy Um, this is not talking about the same thing it was different in ancient days in terms of the naming verse 29 in fearing that we might run on the rocks they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come now I've heard two explanations of this four anchors thing and I I think they're both interesting in my mind I just pictured okay it's going to take a lot to slow the ship down so we're laying down four anchors but another reference I saw, which sounded like they might have had a little bit more nautical background, it was the same sort of thing um, an anchor that maybe would hold a little bit more than this sea anchor, but they would lay one out and it would hold tight, 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 slow things down and when the um, when it looked like it was I guess going to be dangerously tight uh, and cause some damage, they would cut that one and drop another one so The way they they described it, it was four anchors in succession, just trying to gradually put the brakes on so that uh, the ship isn't going to be hitting with full force uh, when it it comes to land. In any event, um, verse 30, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, now think about this. They're trying to slow it down by laying all these anchors from the stern, and then their cover story is, oh yeah, we've got to put some anchors in the front. Now probably even a non-sailor would have figured out, wait a minute, that doesn't quite make much sense. But that's what that was their story. And Paul says to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. In other words, literally, we are all in the same boat now. I don't know where that saying came from, but (laughs) it certainly seems to fit. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Now, this was probably just, it wasn't like just a fast, right? Number one, how are you going to cook? Number two, who wants to really eat. Uh, Most of them were probably more than a little green. Uh, But in any event, he says, um, look, and maybe there was a little calm there, I don't know, but he said, we need to eat a little something. Verse 34, therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God, in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Remember, the owner was on board, so he was probably trying to hold on to the the cargo as long as he could. Verse 39. Now when it was day, they didn't recognize the land, but they noticed... A bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. And at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, that's those um, steering rudders I was showing you, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. Now, when I picture reef, I picture picture coral reef. Uh, They say that this is actually one of those big sandbars. In fact, some translations say striking a a stand bar. They ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. And we know the story of how the Romans uh, had that arrangement that if they couldn't guard their prisoners, then they had to pay. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan, and he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first, and make for land, and the rest on planks or in pieces of the ship. And so it was, they were all brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. A fascinating story. I mean, Luke can craft a great story. So much detail, so much drama. The Jews were, to say the least, not a seafaring nation. They left that to the Egyptians to the south and uh, the groups across the Mediterranean to the north. The sea was bad for them. Um, their mythology, you know, things, bad things came out of the sea and... Um, The story of Jonah, you know, just had lots of bad stuff. Um, uh, The sea was not kind to the Jews. Um, So here you have these Jews. um, And, of course, Paul was much more the world traveler, much more experienced, as we've seen with this. But um, this account would have played very well to the Greeks. The Greeks loved the ocean. They loved the sea. And in fact, stories of shipwreck and drama were a big part of the stories that people would, sh- would share. So this, this would have played very well to Luke's audience, being primarily uh, Gentiles in, in the, the Greco-Roman area uh but what's this all about what why does paul um does Luke include this story about Paul and the shipwreck? There were three other ones, including one when he was adrift for twenty four hours that he could have talked about but why this one um, it's all speculation of course, but there are several. Commentators have taken a crack at it, and uh, they talk about the um, the way that you know there is near certain death, and then there's this breaking of bread for the community to give hope, and kind of conjuring up that picture of Jesus with the disciples at the Last Supper, uh, that there's there's hope beyond this. And one author said, this whole passage is about hope. That that's really what it's about. That that as you start to think about this account overlaid with the story of the cross, Jesus and the cross is talked about very little in Acts. Surprisingly little, you might say. But if you lay this whole story over the 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 dread, the the coming, uh, um, the the warnings, the. Um, how bad things are, but then the word that there's, there's hope after this. There's hope after this. And one commentator that I, I really like this said, this is a picture of what hope looks like after the resurrection. Think about how Paul described this vision. It's from an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. That is much more of a personal image of God than you would typically hear from a Jew under the law. We talk about in colloquial terms and evangelical services about uh, or circles rather about our personal Savior, which some people take offense to, but but Paul says, this is a God to whom I belong. And then there's this passage, and if you read through and you underline all the different times when Paul talks about, if we do this, we'll be saved, if all of us will be saved. None of us is going to die. We'll all make it through. How many times does he talk about literal salvation from this mess if they put their faith and trust in this word that God gave to Paul? And you could think about it, you know, if they can trust the word about a shipwreck with Paul, chances are when they make it to Malta and they have to spend the winter there, they're probably going to trust some of the other things that Paul has to say about another Savior who can save them and bring them through. Um, In Western circles, we like our PowerPoints with our bullets and so forth, and we like direct cause and effect, but this is one of those where the message is just, it's more subtle. It's woven into the story But this is what faith looks like after the cross. Um, There's some supplementary material that I'll talk about this in a little bit more detail. Um, I'll close real quick. I I was just going to include this in the supplementary material, but I'll include this. This is a um, a short poem Uh, I found. The writer was um, a Presbyterian pastor back around the turn of the century. And he says, O maker of the mighty deep, whereon our vessels fare. Above our life's adventures keep thy faithful watch and care. In thee we trust whate'er befall. Thy sea is great, our boats are small. We know not where the secret tides will help us or delay, nor where the lurking tempest tides, nor where the fogs are gray. We trust in thee whate'er befall. Thy sea is great, our boats are small. Beyond the circle of the sea, when voyaging is past, we seek our final part in thee, O bring us home at last. In thee we trust whate'er befall. Thy sea is great, our, boat, our boats are small. Um, they were saved out of their boat um, of a very great sea, um, all of us have been in storms that probably felt just like that. Um, so this is about hope and about a God that is worthy of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are all about salvation. Help us to continue to put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.